0: welcome to living word ministries with director and bible teacher debbie blank each week debbie examines current events through the lens of end times bible prophecies please visit our website for information and past programs at livingwordministry.org now let's open our bibles to focus on truths from god's word with debbie blank
1: the fastest growing church in the world for decades has been in china Why? Because the Chinese have been under such great persecution for the last hundreds of years that they've been searching for and have found hope in Jesus Christ. And we're seeing the same things in places like Iran and other subjugated countries. So why is the church in America decreasing? Because we are, quote, rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, end quote. That, by the way, is a direct quote from Revelation 317 regarding the church of Laodicea, the lukewarm church, the final church to whom Jesus sends his letter. And that church looks a lot like us today. Well, today we're gonna discuss this church, Laodicea, and I hope that you will pay attention to what God is saying to each one of us, because in the midst of his condemnation of this church, he shows his unconditional love to people Who have backslidden. I'm Debbie Blank welcoming you to Living Word Ministries.
0: And I'm Jackie Stiglers. There's a commercial on TV. I don't know if you've seen this or not, but it's really neat. It's for a doorbell gadget that enables you to see who is at your front door, whether you're home or not. The doorbell rings and you get a picture on your phone of who's standing there and you can speak to them or you can go to the door or not, depending on who it is and what you want to do. Well, maybe the Church of Laodicea could have used such a gadget because the shocking thing is that it's the Lord Jesus Christ who they've left waiting outside the door of the church, and he's standing there waiting for someone to let him in. If that could happen then, what message does that send to us and to our churches today?
1: Oh, I can't wait until we get to that verse 20 in chapter 3 so we can talk about Jesus standing outside the door. Well, we're going to begin right away in the book of Revelation chapter 3, starting with verse 14, so we can see what God is saying to the church of Laodicea. But before we do, we need to remind you that we think we don't know God's mentality or why he wrote to these seven specific churches because there were more churches in Asia at that time. But we think it may well have been because these seven churches represent seven different types of churches that we can have in existence at any given time. Or he may have written them with a particular chronological order in mind, which would have Ephesus as the first church, meaning the apostolic era. If that's the case, then Laodicea, the last church, would be the last church in existence before Jesus returns. Boy, are we going to see some similarities for the church of Laodicea in today's life. So let's begin now with Revelation 3.14. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of creation of God says this, Well, we know from discussing last week that every time God writes to the churches, he starts with an explanation of who Jesus Christ is. He primarily goes to chapter one, where Jesus is explained in chapter one, and uses some of the terminology and explanations and adjectives from there to explain Jesus. But each one of them also pertains to the church that he's writing to. For example, he says the amen. Amen means the last. So be it. It's finished. So I wonder if that means that this is the last church. He also says the faithful and true witness. Now that's so important because that means Jesus as a witness, he's seen it all. He knows what's going on. He knows everything that's happening. He's faithful. He's worthy to be believed in what he's saying. He also describes himself as the beginning of the creation of God. Well, he's not saying that God first created him. That's not what he's saying. He's meaning here that creation originated with Jesus Christ. He was the beginning. So he really describes himself here as the end, the amen, and the beginning of creation. I wonder if he's trying to show us here that this is the end of the churches, but that Christ is always present everywhere.
0: And how much he is to be trusted when um you said you know the amen is like at the end of something saying so be it this is true this is the way it is at the beginning sometimes in the bible we'll hear him say verily verily or truly truly i say unto you so it's kind of a a bookend in that regard where he says that what he says is true he's starting that out with this letter I am true, then he says, faithful and true witness. All of those things are that he is the one that is true and to be believed. And then like you said, the beginning of the creation of God isn't that he is a creation, he's the source of creation, it's a claim of deity. So he identifies himself very strongly to this church He has authority in what he says, and now he's about to tell them something important.
1: You mentioned authority. That's why Jesus starts out right away, explaining who he is because it does set out his authority over the churches. His authority to understand what they're going through and to speak to them because it takes someone in authority to be able to share the good and the bad, the positives and the negatives in our lives. I mean, if somebody I don't know walks up to me on the street and starts spewing out negatives, well, how do they have authority to do that? But if my husband did, or if you did, or someone who really knows me, then I need to listen because they have authority in my life.
0: My mother used to say consider the source. If someone were critical of you and it was somebody who was important or was good or fine or whatever versus somebody who was really pretty inconsequential and maybe not trustworthy, you needed to consider that source.
1: Well, Jesus goes on to say in Revelation 315, I know your deeds. Now, that's a common statement that he makes to each one of the churches, because after all, he's evaluating them. He's blessing them. He's also condemning them for some of their actions. Well, in order to do that, you have to know their deeds. Jesus knows everything, and he's affirming to them that he knows their deeds. He says, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will vomit you or spit you out of my mouth. What a condemnation. We need to first understand a little history here in the church of Laodicea and the environment, the city of Laodicea, in order to understand what Jesus is meaning. We have been to that area. It's in the valley, it's in the flatland in western Turkey today, Asia back then. There's mountains in front of it to the north and of course behind it. So it was a main thoroughfare in the trade route because it's in the valley. As you look to the north, what you see are white cliffs those are the White Cliffs of Hierapolis, uh, Pamukkale it's called today, where they have these wonderful springs that are warm and good for your body physically, and people come from all over the world just to take baths in these warm springs because these springs are natural. They come up in little pools on the hill and they spill over the rocks, therefore discoloring the rocks into white. Those are hot springs. Well, just a little bit over the mountain further to the north is Colossae. Colossae was known for the cold water because they were up higher in the hills. Laodicea had no water down where they were in the valley, none. So they got their hot water piped in literally from Hierapolis. We saw the pipes that they brought down that are broken now, but they worked back then. We also saw the pipes that they brought in from Colossae to bring in cold water. That's the only source of water they had. Imagine by the time the water came to Laodicea, the hot water or the cold water, the water became lukewarm. So when Jesus says that they are neither hot nor cold, they're lukewarm, they understand what that means, especially the hot springs of Hierapolis, which with a fizzy or metallic taste, with it not being warm, it would taste really awful. Jesus understood that they knew what he was referring to, when he said that to them.
0: I think about sitting in a restaurant and being served iced tea that's not cold or hot tea that's not hot. I think you would complain to the waitress.
1: When Jesus says here that they're neither cold nor hot, he means cold meaning they lack enthusiasm for spiritual things. They're not Christ-centered in what they do. They just are cold, mechanical in everything that they do rather than hot, on fire, passionate for Jesus Christ. Does that sound like us today? We do things because we participate in a church and we follow our church routines. But do we seek his will in our lives? Do we get up every morning and say, Jesus, I'm yours. Do with me what you want. Use me for your kingdom. Or do we get out of bed and say, God bless this and God bless that? You see, there's a difference there. One puts Christ first, the other puts us first.
0: I always had trouble understanding that when he said, I wish you were cold or I wish you were hot. It seems funny that he would say, I wish you were cold, because to us, that totally dead.
1: It is, except that what he's comparing here is a middle of the road, the type of person who doesn't have passion either way. They are lukewarm in that they're indifferent, they're complacent, they're apathetic. If you're cold, if you have no relationship with Jesus Christ, perhaps you can. I think of Josh McDowell, who was cold towards God, so he set out to examine the evidence and wrote some books called Examining the Evidence that proved that Jesus Christ wasn't really God, and in fact, he proved that he was. Because he was cold, he sought out to find something. But if you're lukewarm, you just kind of think that you've already got it. You don't need to move around and look for God because, after all, you were born into a Christian home. You go to a Christian church. You're a Christian. So who are complacent in the lukewarm position are much harder to move off of that than we are the cold or hot position.
0: Because you don't even care. If you're lukewarm, it might be just a description of total apathy. You don't even care.
1: Jesus said to those lukewarm people, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Well, you and I know what that's like when we get sick, how horrendous that is. Just the idea of such a bodily explanation shows how horrible this is to Jesus Christ, how ashamed he is of them that he has to spit them out of his mouth. After all, when you think of it, why do you vomit? You vomit because something is not settling right inside of your system. And clearly a lukewarm church isn't settling right in Christ's church.
0: So it's not just displeasing, it's the kind of thing that has to be expelled out of your system, it can't remain. It's a very, very strong statement. It's disturbing, and I think it's meant to be. That physical description is meant to disturb us.
1: There's a very important aspect here in Revelation 3.16. When Jesus says, I will spit you out of my mouth, that sounds like it is something he's definitely going to do. But when you understand the verb tense, what he's saying is, this isn't a final decision. You can change it. It's possible for change to take place, for repentance and revival to come about. But if it doesn't, I will vomit you out of my mouth. So I love the verb tenses in Greek because they are much more specific than ours. This isn't future tense like it looks like. There's still a possibility for repentance and change. So much like
0: Jesus, where there's always that chance that he wants to hold out. He wouldn't even be saying this to them if he didn't think there was an opportunity to somehow shake them out of their complacency. And that's what he's doing with this language.
1: It is. And now he's going to condemn them. He starts in verse 17 by saying, because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. And you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Well, I have to give some history here again so we can understand why the Laodiceans would say this. They were a very rich culture. They were known not only for the trade route that I mentioned, but for banking. Very few cities had a banking system as this city did. They were so wealthy that when the city was destroyed in 60 AD by an earthquake, they rebuilt it themselves without any help from Rome. No other city in the area could do that when those earthquakes were prominent in the early part of the church, but this city could do that. They also were known for having invented an eye salve and an ear ointment. We'll see that in a few minutes as to why that's important, but they were very well known for this. Just like New York City is known for its financial markets, Laodicea was known for its eye salve, its ear ointment, as well as its banking. They also had invented something very unique. Everyone had access to white wool, or most people did, but these people had black wool. They were able to make a cheap tunic, Tadra That was one of the major items sold on the trade route. They made a fortune from it. We'll see the importance of that in just a minute. But let's go back to the idea that they were rich, they were wealthy, and let's compare it to us here in the United States. Are we wealthy? Are we rich? Do we have need of nothing? I would say we are in that category.
0: As you were speaking, the comparisons were becoming so obvious, I couldn't help but think of our culture. The creative abilities, the capitalistic abilities, those successful business people in this community, that wealth and so forth that they attributed to their own skills and talents.
1: And that's what we do. When we are successful, oftentimes, we begin to put ourselves on the throne of our lives, thinking that we have done it, that we have made ourselves a success, rather than acknowledging that God has given us the strengths that he's given us so that we can use them for success. If we look at the book of Ephesians, we find out that we are to use the money that God gives us in order to help others, not to just get richer or to buy more things. Now, there's nothing wrong with being wealthy. But when he says in verse 28 of Ephesians 4, let him who labor perform with his own hands what is good in order that he may have something to share with him who has need, God wants us to use our wealth for other people and for God's glory, not just for ourselves. But we have a tendency to use it for ourselves when my father retired 34 years ago, he told me what his salary was. A person in his stature would be making probably about 10 times that amount now, maybe even more, because we have gotten caught up so much in our wealth. Keep in mind, however, that the poorest people in our country are richer than 95% of the people in the world. So we really are rich, we really are wealthy, And for the most part, we have need of nothing because if we don't provide it, the government does. What's so
0: important in what you said is there's nothing wrong with being successful and being productive and producing wealth. There's nothing wrong with that. But what you're talking about and what he's talking about is that greed, that selfishness, and that pride. When they say, I am rich and have become wealthy, that's the center of their world. It's, It's who they are and what they've done.
1: And yet Jesus says about them, you don't even know that you're wretched. In Romans 7 24, Paul uses that word wretched to talk about the unsaved. So these people think they're Christians, think they're wealthy, but Paul's saying they're unsaved and you're miserable. That word miserable means pitied. First Corinthians 15 19 indicates that they are most to be pitied because they've lost their focus. Wealth has become their number one attention and themselves rather than Jesus Christ. And then he declares of them, they're poor. Well, clearly they're not poor, but he means they're poor spiritually. Remember when Jesus says in the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit? Well, that's what he wants in us, is to be humble before him. Then he goes on to say, you're blind. Clearly he's not talking about physically being blind, he's talking about spiritually. They can't see what's right in front of them And yet they have this famous eye salve that should allow them to see, at least physically. He's using that analogy so that they can understand that they're not seeing spiritually the things that are important. They couldn't see the state that they were in. They were blind guides, if you think about how Jesus called the Pharisees in the book of Matthew. And finally, he said of them, they're naked. Really, when you think about being naked, you think of humiliation. Now, in our culture, that may not be the case. But in this time, that was a case that when you were naked, you were completely humiliated. And that's what Jesus is saying they really are instead of what they think they are.
0: When we were talking about the Church of Ephesus, we talked about being called out for your blind spots. And literally, they're being called out for their blind spots. These are things that they don't remotely see themselves as being. But in the things that count, Jesus is the one who can call out those things that he sees in them that they're lacking.
1: So he warns them, he gives them advice in verse 18 when he says, I advise you to buy from me gold refined from fire that you may become rich. I'll stop here for a minute. When you think of gold, we all want gold. But do we want gold refined by fire? That means it goes through a purging process. It's um, basically going through fire so that all the dross can be taken away from it. When Peter talks about that, in First Peter chapter 1, and I'm just gonna look at verse seven, it says, the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor, At the revelation of jesus christ peter's making a comparison here that if you want to have a strong faith you're going to go through fire you're going to go through trials just as gold does well i don't think the laodiceans would want this i don't think we want it what happens when we have problems at work or we have financial difficulties or we get persecuted because we're christian generally speaking that will cause if we are christian Our faith to grow deeper in Jesus Christ or we'll get mad at God. Usually it's one of the two. Hopefully our faith will grow deeper. That's when we're refined by fire. But which one of us would choose that? We don't until afterwards and we look back and we have the peaceful fruit of righteousness for what God has done in our spiritual life. But on the surface, we don't want it.
0: You know, when I'm reading too about this, when he says to come to him and to buy this gold from him... And then these white garments come to him to get these white garments that they may clothe themselves. How do you buy something from God like this? I think it's somewhere in Isaiah where he says, come and buy without money, that you have to come to him and then you can get these things. Those white garments are given to us by Christ. It's his righteousness. So there's a little bit of a trick here when he's saying, come and buy from me these things that you can't get anywhere else but from him.
1: Well, see, they were so rich, they could buy anything they wanted. They thought they could buy things from God. Don't we try and do that with God? We bargain with God. We plead with God. We do foxhole prayers. We think we can manipulate God, and they did too. Jesus uses that, I think, as another example to them. I'm telling you, looking back over my lifetime, and I know that you feel the same way, Jackie, and I'm sure our listeners do too, that we are blessed when we go through trials because we turn them around to see Jesus. Jesus grows us, he refines us, he takes off the dross, and we draw closer to him. And then he goes on to say that he advises them to buy white garments. Well, remember they're wearing black garments. They have this well-known black garment industry. So he's now saying, You don't want black garments, you want white garments. And you had mentioned that those are the righteous acts of the saints, according to Revelation 19. So we should want white garments because those are what we're going to be clothed with before Jesus Christ, the white garments of righteousness.
0: And the way you get to that is to humble yourself. You talked about those moments of humility where these people are very prideful. But if they get to that moment where they can humble themselves and come to the Lord and say, this is the only way I can get these things is from you. That's the most victorious moment of their life when they hit bottom and realize that they need to come to the Lord. That's
1: actually victory. It is. And in Matthew 22, Jesus uses an example. He talks about the people who aren't dressed in wedding clothes being cast out into the outer darkness. So we should want these white garments of doing what Jesus wants us to do, of doing good works in the name and for Jesus Christ, not for ourselves. He goes on in verse 18 and advises them. That the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. That's why they're to close themselves. And by eye salve to anoint your eyes that you may see. Well, again, we're talking here. He's saying by this eye salve, you should know what eye salve will do. But now I'm saying to you, buy it spiritually. Jesus goes on to say in verse 19, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. What I love about what Jesus is saying to the church here is even though he condemns them for their actions, all he shows about himself and his words are love. He doesn't want to condemn them to punish them. He wants to love them back into a relationship with him. So he says, I love you. Even though you're lukewarm, I phileo love you. You're like a brother to me. I care about you. And that's why I reprove you. I." really want to compel you to see your error of your ways so that you'll turn around and I discipline you for the purpose of godliness. In Hebrews chapter 12, we see a great example of how God disciplines us for the purpose of godliness, just as a father disciplines his son. It's not to get even. It's not to punish. It's to draw them back to Jesus. And then he says, be zealous, fervently repent turn away turn around come back to me give up the way you're living
0: and when he says come back to me we come to that verse where he's so close he's right there all they have to do is let him in because he's standing there at the door knocking
1: um, verse 20 says that I stand at the door and knock if anyone hears my voice and opens the door I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me Do you see that? Jesus is outside knocking at the door just waiting for us to open. He's always there. He's always willing and eager. But you and I have a responsibility to open that door. You and I have a responsibility to listen to Jesus. And if we will, he will come in with us forever. The idea of dining with us is lingering long time at a meal, which means Jesus will linger with us. He will stay with us forever. The thing that stuns
0: me about that verse, verse 20, where Jesus is standing at the door, he is standing outside the door of the church. The church has left him outside. And I wonder sometimes if the churches today have left him outside and he's
1: trying to get in. If we go back to the church of Ephesus, one of the things we saw there was Jesus was standing among the lampstands. He was inside the churches. And as you say now, after the entire church age has worked its time through, Jesus is outside the door. Do you think he left? no i think we have pushed him out if we are living in the postmodern era of the christian church as most people say we are we have pushed jesus christ out of our churches of our country and really around the world of almost all the countries we have instead filled our lives full of lukewarm activities events religiosity all the things that look good, but they aren't filled with Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is not the preeminent. He is not the head of the church anymore by the time we get to the church of Laodicea. But he still never leaves us and he never forsakes us. He is standing fervently planted outside that door so that we can see our important responsibility of opening that door. I heard an amazing story one time of a woman in Iran who was listening to the Jesus movie on TV, and at the end of that, somebody came on the screen and says, "Jesus is standing at the door knocking so that you will open the door and they quoted Revelation 3:20 all of a sudden, this woman heard a knock at her door she went and opened the door and there was Jesus standing right there at her door. So she let him in and they conversed and talked and did whatever they did. And she committed her life to Jesus Christ. And then he left. So she called the number on the screen and said, Jesus was just at my door. He was knocking and I opened the door and they said, oh, yes, we know you You open the door to your heart and you let him in. And that's wonderful. And here's what we're going to do for you. She said, no, 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 you don't understand. He was knocking at my door of my apartment and I opened the door and let him in. She took this literally and in her way, this is what she saw. Whatever happened, we don't know, but this is how she explains it is truly happening. But she took the responsibility of accepting Jesus Christ as Lord of her life. And that's what you and I need to do. Then Jesus will be with us forever. He will linger with us. He will dine with us. He will never leave us or forsake us. We can count on him, but we must have him, not religiosity, not this lukewarm mentality that we're in charge and he isn't we have a responsibility to repent and then open the door of faith in our relationship with jesus christ and i pray that you will do that by turning your heart to jesus today open the door say yes jesus i accept you into my life repent and turn and commit your life to jesus christ from this day forward and then jesus will say to you Sit down with me on my throne as I have overcome and sat down with my father on his throne.
0: Thank you for joining us today on Living Word Ministries with Debbie Blank. This is a listener supported show. If you'd like to support this program or contact Debbie Blank, you may do so at P.O. Box 540-003, Omaha, Nebraska 68154 or visit our website at livingwordministry.org. Please tune in each week at this same time for Living Word Ministries with Debbie Blank.